This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Hello and welcome. You're listening to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. My name is Dustin Smith. As always, I will be your host. And this is episode 169 entitled Mark's High Human Christology Chapter 11. I appreciate you so much for joining us this week for this episode. Ah yes, it is another episode looking at the Gospel of Mark and the Christology contained within its narrative. Things are heating up as Jesus enters Jerusalem for the final week of his life before the cross. We can expect quite a few controversy stories, which usually center around the person of Jesus and the authority he bears from God. I have really tried to give an honest attempt at reading the Christological passages in Mark in the highest, most divine way possible. But time and time again, I keep seeing the evidence pointing in a different direction, wherein Jesus is distinct from God, while at the same time bearing God-given prerogatives, authority, and empowerment. In this week's episode, we will look at Mark chapter 11 and note three stories that all directly deal with Mark's Christology. First, We will examine the so-called triumphal entry to see how the crowds regard and understand Jesus. Second, we will examine Jesus' temple tantrum and his subsequent transitioning of the temple functions unto his own disciples. What sort of person is allowed to make these dramatic changes in the temple cult? Lastly, we will look closely at the questions offered to Jesus by the temple leadership regarding his authority and from whom did he receive it. Are the words and deeds contained within Mark chapter 11 just too high for a human being to enact? Or are they reasonable within a framework of a highly authorized and anointed member of the human race. Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Our first point today is the triumphal parody. We're reading out of Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village opposite you, And immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? You say, The Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it back here. They went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. Some of the bystanders were saying to them, What are you doing, untying the colt? They spoke 
to them just as Jesus had told them, and they gave them permission. They brought the colt to Jesus and put their coats on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their coats in the road, and others spread leafy branches, which they had cut from the fields. Those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. That's Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. Now I gave the title for this section, The Triumphal Parody, because the triumphal entry would have been read as a parody of former important persons entering into Jerusalem, according to Mark's original readers. So I'm going to list four previous persons that had their own triumphal entries into Jerusalem and note a few patterns, and then we can compare and contrast how Jesus' triumphal entry would make sense of these former examples. So the first example would be Alexander the Great, and his entry into Jerusalem is described by Josephus. We know that Alexander the Great arrived to Jerusalem with his companions. Alexander was greeted by the high priest and a multitude of expectant persons. Alexander was saluted with a single voice, all speaking in unison, and he entered the temple and offered sacrifices to God. The next example would be Judas Maccabeus, according to 1 Maccabees. Judas Maccabeus also arrived to Jerusalem with his companions. The event was accompanied with, quote, joy and gladness, according to the author of 1 Maccabees. And Judas entered into the temple and offered burnt sacrifices. Third example will be Simon Maccabeus, also recorded in 1 Maccabees. So Simon arrived to Jerusalem. He was surrounded by leafy palm branches. He was accompanied with hymns, songs, and praises, all sung in one accord. And upon entering into the temple, he strengthened the temple's fortifications. Fourth example will be the consul Marcus Agrippa. This is recorded by Josephus. Now, Marcus Agrippa was invited to Jerusalem by Herod the Great. Herod, according to Josephus, quote, omitted nothing that might please him. So Herod was able to give anything and everything that might be pleasing to the consul here, to Marcus Agrippa. Marcus Agrippa was met with crowds, and they were all wearing festive garments. He was accompanied with welcoming acclamations, and he entered into the temple and offered sacrifices together with Herod the Great. So in fact, this sort of reception that we're seeing has a lot of similarities with what we see here in Mark chapter 11. And this particular treatment 
where a visiting elite figure would come to a city was so expected that whenever a city would refuse to act in this way, like in the example of the city of Thessonio, that city was actually besieged and sacked, according to the Greek historian Dio Cassius. So this was a very common and expected way that you would treat a arriving elite figure. Now, when Jesus enters, the story sort of looks like he is following the script of these other elite persons that are entering into Jerusalem. Jesus arrives with his companions. He is greeted with a crowd, and they offer a collective chant in unison. He is greeted with leafy palm branches. Now he is granted a donkey upon which he can ride as a courtesy of some local villagers, and Jesus enters into the temple. So all of those things look like Jesus following the script. However, there are some details that indicate that this story is of a parodying nature. Let's look at a couple of these details. Well, we can see that the animal used for Jesus' entry is borrowed. Granted, it was borrowed with permission, and Jesus promised that he would return it. So Jesus is not forcibly requisitioning a particular animal as if he has authority over these people that he is enacting. Jesus, of course, enters on this lowly animal. He's not like Alexander or these various war heroes coming in on a war horse or even a chariot. Now, the climactic part of the story, wherein the parody is ultimately made known, is when Jesus enters the temple, where, unlike the former elite persons before him, who all made sacrifices, Jesus does not offer sacrifices. Jesus does not fortify the temple. In fact, he disrupts the sacrificial system. He cleanses the temple, and he judges the practices taking place therein as unfit for what the temple of God represented. So that is kind of the climactic punch to where the parody is ultimately made known. But if you're a reader of Mark and you're not familiar with these various stories of the triumphal entry, you would not see and recognize that particular parody. Now, let's take a look at the chant that is offered to Jesus during his entry. We also notice that when these elite persons would enter into the city, or specifically when the four entered into Jerusalem, they were accompanied in unison with various chants, acclamations, hymns, praises. And so here in Mark 11, verses 9 through 10, it says that those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. So they're drawing this out of primarily Psalm 118, where the Lord there is Yahweh himself. It's the divine name. Of course, when the Greek translates it, it's going to use the word Kyrios, the word Lord. But when it says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, that is, he who comes in the name of Yahweh. 
And this is something that they were doing. They were shouting. It was shouting this over and over and over. And you can just kind of hear the crowd saying this as Jesus is riding along. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were just repeating this over and over. Now, by shouting Hosanna and declaring that Jesus as coming in the name of Yahweh, do the crowds think that Jesus is Yahweh? I think that this would be a mistaken interpretation because it confuses the sender with the agent who is sent. Let's look back at the original context of Psalm 118, which was a pilgrimage festival psalm. I'm going to look into Psalm 118. I'm going to start in verse 25, where the psalmist says, O Yahweh, do save. We beseech you. O Yahweh, we beseech you. Do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of Yahweh. That's Psalm 118, verses 25 through 26. So we have the psalmist that is singing and shouting out to Yahweh and praying and beseeching Yahweh that he would save and that he would send prosperity. And then what happens? We have someone coming in the name of Yahweh as that person who was sent to bring about prosperity. So Jesus, quote, coming in the name of Yahweh End quote, means that Jesus is the agent of Yahweh, bearing Yahweh's authority. And again, this chant is something that the crowds were repeatedly saying. The Greek is ekrazon in the imperfect tense. Now, the crowds regard Jesus as the agent of God, coming in the name of Yahweh, and they are not rebuked for their theology. The narrator himself of the chapter seems content with what the crowds are saying and he does not paint them as misguided, as faithless, or even ignorant. We have seen other examples in the Gospel of Mark where the crowds have varying understandings of who Jesus is and it's pretty clear in the context how Jesus or the narrator understands the response given by the crowds. And there's no indication here that the narrator disagrees with what the crowds are saying. Now, there might be another illusion taking place in regard to Jesus as the one who comes. Remember, he is the one who comes in the name of Yahweh. But it's this phrase, the one who comes. In Genesis chapter 49, there is a messianic prophecy given to Judah's family line. The royal line of Judah, which is indicated with a king's scepter, is linked with, as Genesis 49 verse 10 probably says in Hebrew, quote, he comes to whom it belongs, end quote. Now what is interesting is that the following verse Genesis 49 verse 11 associates a 
cult with the royal line of Judah. And the Septuagint of Genesis 49 uses the same word for cult, the word polon, that Mark uses four times within this particular chapter. So what we have is a concentration of themes here. I count three themes, namely the one who comes, the cult, and the kingdom of David, who, by the way, is a descendant of Judah. And I'm going to make the argument that it's likely that these three together indicate that Genesis 49 is deliberately being echoed with this chant from the audience. And if so, then the understanding of the Messiah as being chanted in regard to Jesus is that of a human descendant from the lines of Judah and David, meaning the one who comes in the name of Yahweh is the human king to whom belongs the kingdom of David that bears Yahweh's authority. So I think we need to be thinking in this passage not only of Psalm 118, but also of Genesis 49, verses 8 through 11. Okay, so enough about that and the triumphal entry parody. Let's move on to Jesus within the temple. This is our second point, point number two, which is the temple tantrum and the new temple community. I'll start here in verse 15 of Mark chapter 11. Then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple, and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach and say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? but you have made it a robber's den. The chief priest and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him. For the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. When evening came, they would go out from the city. As they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered, saying to them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them and they will be granted you. Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive your transgressions. That's Mark chapter 11, verses 15 through 25. Now, as we have already indicated, Jesus' actions in the temple create the climactic parody of the common triumphal entry stories into Jerusalem. 
instead of participating in sacrifices, prayer, and the pilgrimage hymns, Jesus cleanses the temple and enacts a symbolic judgment upon the temple's practices. The cleansing of the temple and the withering of the fig tree stem from Jesus' authority expressed in these said acts of judgment. Now, Jesus' authority is not recognized by the temple leadership, the elders, the high priest, or even by the Romans. Jesus' authority, however, has been made known within the narrative of Mark's gospel, beginning with chapter 1, verse 1, which defines Jesus as the Son of God, the agent commissioned by God to rule as king. So while the authority of Jesus is not recognized by the Jerusalem temple cult and their leadership, this authority is something that the readers of Mark have already come to understand and accept. We can see some various things that we've already looked at in previous chapters, like Jesus' authority was acknowledged by those who heard his teachings, according to chapter 1, verse 22 and verse 27. Jesus himself stated that he is the Son of Man bearing authority to forgive sins, and that this authority is an authority that he received from God. Chapter 2, verse 10. And Jesus has authority to cast out demons. And Jesus even shared this authority with his own disciples. Chapter 3, 15. Chapter 6, verse 7. So the reader of Mark's narrative knows for sure that Jesus does in fact possess authority, while the leadership in the Jerusalem temple do not understand this. In fact, the quote-unquote driving out of those who were buying and selling in this particular account is described with the Greek verb ekvalo, which is the same verb Jesus used to cast out demons with his authority. In other words, Mark describes Jesus' cleansing of the temple as an exorcism of the temple. Both the casting out of demons and the casting out of the money changers are performed with Jesus' God-given authority. And that places the guilty persons within the temple leadership on the same side with the demons and the unclean spirits. Now, having enacted judgment upon the temple, destruction, of course, is soon to follow. And if Mark was written around the year 70 AD, or even slightly after, as some modern scholars are starting to argue, then... Mark's readers would be well aware that the Romans did in fact destroy the temple, demonstrating that Jesus' prophetic act of judgment indeed came to pass. This would further demonstrate Jesus' authority over and against the authority possessed by the temple leadership with a prophecy that came to fruition. Now, if the temple 
which is one of the most important aspects of Second Temple Judaism, was to be destroyed in an act of judgment, how would the functions of the temple, which are God-ordained, continue on? And Jesus answers this question by conferring the temple's most important functions unto his believing disciples. The disciples are instructed to have miracle-working faith in God. Mark 11, verses 22 through 23. It's the disciples who are told to be the ones who pray and make requests unto God, no longer reserving this practice for what Jesus himself calls the house of prayer. Mark 11:24. And lastly, the disciples are to be the people through whom forgiveness is found, no longer reserving that role for the temple's high priest. Mark 11:25. So, the question we need to ask in regard to Christology is, who has the authority to take all of the basic principles of the Jerusalem temple and reapply them to a new group of people now functioning as the believing temple community? Well, obviously God has that authority, but we also need to consider that the king, the son of God, had authority over the temple according to Jewish theology. I want you to consider some of these messianic passages from the Hebrew Bible, which talk about how the messianic king, the son of God, has authority over the temple. The first one comes in the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 13, which says, When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom he shall build a house for my name. Second Samuel 7, verses 12-13, to where the Davidic descendant, to whom is promised the kingdom, will be the temple builder. He will build a house for God's name. Also we can see in Zechariah chapter 6, starting in verse 12, much of the same. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, Behold, a man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of Yahweh. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of Yahweh. That's Zechariah chapter 6, verses 12 through 13, to where Yahweh says that someone else, a human being, who has the messianic title of the Branch, which is the one that stems off of the family tree of David, will branch out and he will be the temple builder. Yes, he will be the builder of Yahweh's temple. So, son of God, which is a title for the Jewish messianic king, is the opening title given to Jesus by Mark in chapter 1, verse 1. And in fact, Jesus is called Son of God by God himself at Jesus' baptism. Chapter 1, verse 11. And Jesus, as Son of God, as this king, has the authority to 
rebuild and reapply temple functions from a physical building to a group of his believing disciples. Jesus has this authority. He bears this authority. And it is this authority, which is openly stated by Mark and confirmed at Jesus' baptism, that comes to the forefront in the next controversy story. Let's move to our third and final point. Point number three, the authority of Jesus. Let's read out of Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 27. They came again to Jerusalem. As he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and scribes and the elders came to him and began saying to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or, who gave you this authority to do these things? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, and you answer me. And then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. They began reasoning among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, then why did you not believe him? But shall we say from men? They were afraid of the people, for everyone considered John to have been a real prophet. Answering Jesus, they said, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. That's Mark 11, verses 27 through 33. Now the theme of Jesus as the authorized king of Israel, the Messiah, has been running throughout the narrative of Mark chapter 11. The messianic king who comes in the name and under the authority of Yahweh himself is the king to whom the kingdom of the ancestor David belongs. The messianic king, who is the authorized temple builder, has the right to clean up shop if he deems that the temple functions are not operating properly. The messianic king, as the temple builder, bears the authority to transition the temple's activities, such as prayer and forgiveness, to a new temple community of faithful human beings. Immediately after Jesus transfers the temple functions to his new temple community, consisting of his disciples, the narrative of Mark describes how Jesus and his followers come back to Jerusalem and re-enter the temple building. Jesus is confronted by the chief priest, the scribes, and the elders. They, quote, were saying to him, end quote, using the Greek verb eleion, and this indicated a repeated questioning on this issue by asking two specific questions. Question one, by what authority are you doing these things? Question two, who gave you this authority to do these things? And these are the questions that they were saying to him. They're repeatedly asking these questions centered on Jesus' authority and the person who gave this authority to Jesus. Now, readers of Mark's narrative know the answers to these questions. Jesus has the authority of the Son of God, the anointed King of the Jews. Who gave Jesus this authority? Answer, 
God himself. So Jesus offers to answer their questions if they answer one of his. Jesus asked them, did the baptism of John come from heaven or from men? Now, a lot of readers of Mark just read this as if Jesus is offering them a tricky question to get out of answering their questions to him. But here's the key point. If the temple leadership could come to admit that John's baptism was from heaven, and for the baptism of John to be from heaven, that would mean that it was authorized by God, the one who lives in heaven, then the temple leadership could connect the dots, see that John's authorized baptism is what Jesus submitted to, resulting in the voice of God spoken from heaven that said that Jesus is truly the Son of God. The Son of God is the anointed king of the kingdom who has authority over the temple, and thereby Jesus' authority would justify his actions within the temple as God ordained. So if the Jerusalem leadership would admit that John's baptism was from heaven, it was authorized by God, then they can connect the dots and come to realize that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, who has authority over the temple. That is why Jesus' question to them is not merely a question to get them thinking, but a question that would actually get them to understand the Christology that Mark possesses. Now, those who came out to John's baptism likely heard what was recorded in Mark chapter 1, verses 7 through 8, that John spoke of one coming after him who was mightier than he. And if John the Baptist was truly authorized by heaven, then his prophetic foretelling of the coming of the Mighty One, who turned out to be Jesus, the Son of God, would need to be taken seriously, specifically by the temple leadership. And there is yet another part of the story that is often not emphasized, but it also speaks to the authority that Jesus possesses. In verse 29, Jesus tells his dialogue partners to answer me before he gives his question. And then after he lays out the question, Jesus again demands that they answer me in verse 30. The repetition of the command to give him an answer highlights further the authority of Jesus, who effectively is commanding the leadership to do something that they refuse to do. So their failure to respond is actually disobedience. In conclusion, we have observed that the identity of Jesus within the Gospel of Mark is closely bound up with the authority Jesus possesses from God. As the narrative of Mark continues ever so quickly towards the cross, the identity of the authorized Jesus becomes more at the focal point of the controversies leading to his death. We first observed that the triumphal entry was a deliberate parody of other entries into Jerusalem by elite men within Israel's history. 
the crowds rightly acknowledge Jesus as the authorized agent of Yahweh, and they probably linked this agent to the destiny of the royal king that descends from the line of Judah, further emphasizing the authentic humanity of this powerful agent. Second, we noted that Jesus demonstrates his authority in the physical temple by enacting a symbolic scene of judgment. As the Son of God, Jesus bears the authority of the temple builder, who can rebuild the temple and reestablish its functions in the midst of the community of his believing disciples. Lastly, we saw how the identity of Jesus as the Son of God, bearing the authority of God himself, is directly confronted when Jesus is questioned in the temple by the leading men. When Jesus attempts to get the leadership to rightly regard John the Baptist as a truly authorized prophet, which would in turn prove that Jesus is the authorized messianic king, the leaders refuse to answer. By portraying Jesus as the authorized king of the Jews, who functions as the agent of Yahweh, Mark is demonstrating that his Christology is very high, but it is a high human Christology. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. We're looking at Mark chapter 12 next week and perhaps a little bit of Mark chapter 13 as well. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please consider supporting us as we promote the sound truths of the oneness and unity of God and the humanity of Jesus. Head over to iTunes and give us a five-star rating if you think we deserve it. Share your favorite episodes with your friends. And if you care to offer a donation, you may check out the episode's description for a PayPal link. Special thanks to our producer and editor, Dustin Williams, for his fine work each and every week. My name is Dustin Smith. Until next time, you folks take care.